Hi, Jesse. Good to have you on the podcast. Good to be here. What's the word? <laughs> so um, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please uh, give us like a brief overview of what you're doing and who you are? Absolutely. My name is Jesse Kay, and I run a company called New Agency, which is culture marketing. Basically, we make brands or help brands have meaningful connections with their consumers by leveraging entertainment, musicians, celebrities, celebrities with talent, and uh, we create buzz around product launches or campaigns. That's kind of our primary business of the agency. And then we also produce our own IP, like we've got a hit series Crown, C-R-W-N, which we produce with uh, Elliot Wilson. And that's an interview show with the biggest names in hip hop. And we have a weekly newsletter called Beats and Bites, which breaks down everything you need to know in music, tech, and brands. And I'm spinning off a book from that. And then we do a lot of advising, consulting for startups uh, and, and investing as well. <laughs> awesome. So um, before we talk. I'm just sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we talk about your agency, and I think you have worked with like big, big names in hip hop, like Drake and T.I. and Nicki Minaj. And um, before I talk about uh, like this whole business, um, let's speak a little bit about yourself. So um, before we talk about how you got into entrepreneurship, um, could you please tell us a little bit about like how you grew up and how your childhood looked like? Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I'm like a New Yorker, thick and thin. Uh, and when I was about 12, I moved out to Westchester. And so I'm a New York guy. And um, then moved out to California after college for a little bit. And then came. Why? Why? Why did you move to California? An opportunity came up to work in the video game space. And I was in my late 20s, and I thought this was an amazing opportunity to expand my contacts, my relationship, my Rolodex, and to learn and grow as a person. So I feel like everybody's got to live in California at some point, but don't stay too long because it'll make you soft. <laughs> I came back to New York after three years, and that's when we really started a new agency and got things rolling. I got it. So um, basically, you had a pretty good childhood in, in New York. I mean, I'm very lucky to grow up in New York in this era of hip hop just coming up. Um, I fell in love with it in high school. And New York is, you know, the capital of the world to some extent when it comes to Wall Street or Madison Avenue or uh, even business and culture. So it's this amazing kind of melting pot. And to have it in my backyard was such a blessing. Uh, I love it here in New York City. And I am inspired and fall in love with this girl called New York every single day. <laughs> it was great growing up here. Um, you know, Brooklyn had its troubles back then. It was definitely a different Brooklyn than it is now. Brooklyn's What like kind of troubles? It was just a different era back then in Brooklyn. I mean, you could 
buy houses for a lot cheaper because there was just a lot of trouble out there. You know, mm. it was every one of my friends growing up got robbed and mugged and, you know, that's the reality that you lived in. If you grew up as a, a kid in Brooklyn, you would have people jumping on your school bus and beating people up or stealing your bike right in front of your face uh, on the subway. This was the 80s and, and, and this was the, the, the kind of different era of New York than, mm. than after what like Bloomberg and that era of what it is right now, which is really cleaned up. And it's a different New York than it was. And it was always still so cool and this melting pot of culture, but it just wasn't the same as it is now. Now it's like so safe. It's ridiculous. I feel like <laughs> anywhere else in the world. So um, how did uh, New York shape you personally? Um, and yeah. And, and your journey. Well, I think, Being from New York has just given me this kind of sensibility of on a global scale. If you can make an impact locally, the whole world feels it. So there's a lot of <laughs> thinking local or thinking global, but acting local. And the beautiful thing about having New York be your local background is it's a global reach. Uh, also, it's such a high energy, high intensity space. We're all on this one island of Manhattan. It's 11 square miles or 11 miles by two miles. And it's just electric with people and everybody's just slammed. And it's this city that just rewards the hustler and builds this kind of character. And it's as tough as it can be. But it's also of times of tragedy. I was here for 9-11 and I've been here for various eras and like everybody comes together when um, things go wrong like that. It's mm. one of the cities with just tremendous heart, but also very rowdy. I mean, they'll boo Derek Jeter, who was like the greatest player in New York history at the time, if he struck out three times in a row. You know, even if he won the championship last year, it's a tough crowd. And, you know, you're definitely going to get knocked into in the sidewalk because there's so many people. And it's kind of a badge of honor. So I've grown up as a New Yorker. And right now, New York still feels like the place to be. So I love being here. Now, I also love to travel. I think as a marketer, it's your job to get cultural understanding and embed yourself in different flavors and tastes just so you can be a more well-rounded person and business person and thinker. So yeah, New York is the capital or global capital of the world, but it's not the be all end all. It's mm. it's, its own thing. So you still got to move around. And I love where the heat is here in New York right now. But who's to say in 10 years that the capital of the world might shift? And, you know, at that time, I'd be open to moving, moving camps. But for right now, my family's here. My business is here. Everybody's coming through. We've got Broadway. 
we got Ted <laughs> concert tonight. It's hard because there's so much happening in New York at one night, at one time. And, you know, most places you got to move around kind of a little slower. In New York, I could be in Brooklyn last night for RapCon and then shoot over the bridge to go to see Little Nas X perform, who's as hot as it could be, at <laughs> all the brand new Webster Hall, and then back in Brooklyn for a nightcap with my sweetheart, all in, you know, a two-hour kind of flip. So it's just, you know, you can't do that in other places. And that's mm. just one of the thousands of things going on in New York. So the energy is electric. It can be exhausting, uh, but it's in my DNA. And so that hustle I bring everywhere I go. And I think a lot of that is a testament to growing up here in New York and mm -hmm. really loving it and living it. Now, living in L.A. was a different experience, right? Because you're automatically three hours behind New York. You're eight hours behind London. You're never going to catch up. <laughs> so there's no rushing, right? In New York, you're up at 5 a.m. You're churning out emails. You're turning out deals. More is coming in. It's just like the more you hustle you put in, the more business you get coming back. In L.A., you can take an hour and a half lunch, right? <laughs> you're already late. You woke up at 9 o'clock. It's already noon in New York. You're not going to catch up. So you can have a much better lifestyle. I felt like in L.A. I really learned the value of having health be a priority and, and lifestyle and having this be a lifestyle business. I mean, look at me. I'm mm. in like, athletic wear because I'm doing yoga and then I'm going to work for hours on the phone and then uh, I'm going to go to another workout class and then I'm going to shower before dinner. So it's. It's now I kind of have taken that L.A. state of mind and that kind of California uh, laid back cool and prioritizing of health and, mm. and, 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 and kind of feeling good body wise, soul wise and bringing it to New York. So I, I really credit those three years I did live in L.A. for a lot of the experiences um, that I learned about prioritizing health and taking the time to think. Because New York, it's like, you know, lunges for wimps. I mean, I'm back-to-back <laughs> I'm, I'm -back calls. I'm deals on wheels. And that's kind of how <laughs> I, I love your passion about New York. But um, because you said that um, the times in the 80s and 90s were totally different in, in Brooklyn and New York, um, could you maybe share with our listeners maybe a crazy story or two? So um, <laughs> you have uh, in your mind. I mean, the early, you want 80s, you want 90s? What kind of story do you mean? Yeah, I, I don't know. Something interesting. I mean, every one of my friends growing up had their bikes stolen, right? It's like when I get together with my friends from Brooklyn that we grew up out here, it's like honors. It's a badge of honor to tell how many times you were mugged. Like, I would be six, seven years old on a bus to my school uh, in Park Slope, and people would jump on the back of the bus. Like, we would drive by certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn and 
Cats would jump on the back wheel and open the security exit and come into the bus and hit kids with socks full of chalk. Like what? Smacking kids in the face with like a sock full of chalk. And kids would be like, ah, running all over the place and the teacher would have to push them the the high school kids off the off the bus from the <laughs> and then we would just like go back to on our way to school or on our way home you know those were the type of things that you would deal with i mean my father got his nose broken on our block like just over a parking spot it was tough it was tough it was different than than um than it is now right mm. It's a, it's a lot harder to pull things off uh, in that fashion, especially in, in, in Brooklyn uh, and in Manhattan. It, it's crazy to hear that um, how many times your bike gets stolen is a badge of honor. <laughs> like growing up. Now, with that said, I lived in Chelsea last summer in Manhattan, and I had three bikes stolen right in front of my house. What? Those are like more delivery guys for parts or who knows. Um, New York's also changing a little bit under de Blasio than it was under Bloomberg. It's a little edgier. It's definitely gotten a little grittier. You can see that like that kind of that gloss that Bloomberg had brought to make New York City like the greatest corporation in the world is no longer there under de blasio he's less focused on business he's more focused on kind of like running it his way which uh has led to a little bit more crime which has led to a little bit more poverty which has led to um a little bit more it seems like homeless people on the street so de blasio new york is definitely different than bloomberg new york and i, I did have three bikes stolen uh last year from my house but It's different than someone, you know, smacking a, a, a 10 year old in the face and taking yeah. him on a train. Like that was the type of shit it was back in New York, early, early 80s and, and, and 90s. <laughs> so, um, kids and Koch, it was like, you've seen Wild Style, you've seen these old school hip hop movies. Like, yeah. That was New York. That was what graffiti. There's this amazing exhibit right now in Brooklyn called Beyond the Streets. And it's a tribute to all the, the history of graffiti and the great New York graffiti artists. And um, it shows that like in the 80s and even the 90s, like graffiti was seen as this like. It was like a gateway drug to, to crime and to all of this horrible culture that was like going to be unruly now developers are using graffiti as like a hack to build cities and like it's a gentrification play that's happening in like miami and in new york like it's art and it's high-end art and it like actually raises property value by strategically using graffiti but back then graffiti was like really um an era of, of crime and, 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 <laughs> and so that's the era I grew up and that's, yeah. uh, that's what New York looked like. It's even the music business has just changed so much and still changing. But like I got in in the, the, the early two thousands, like 
That was a different time. I saw the final hurrah of like what a record business looked like selling CDs. And the profits in the 80s and 90s in the music business were just so astronomical. You were selling these CDs that cost, what, 10 cents to make? And you were this new format was being revolutionized. Everybody was buying CDs. They would be like $20 a CD. You'd be able to sell, you know, the Fuji's I sold, think sold 18 million copies. Outcast sold 15 million copies of CDs. That's, that's a huge that's amount. Including the old, you know, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Beatles, Catalog, Bob Marley, CDs that were already out on vinyl and tape. And now this mm. one is completely doesn't exist. But these labels made so much profit in that era and they controlled the market. They didn't even, they weren't giving fair, transparent accounting. It was just a different era in the music business where like the gatekeepers controlled MTV and television. They controlled radio. There, there wasn't that many concert opportunities. And so they could really like maximize profits and, 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 and rape artists, which was horrible. And that's why it was such a gangster business back then. It's changed. I mean, it's gotten a lot smarter. It's gotten a lot more tech centric. It's gotten a lot more power in the artist's hands and the technologists who are a little bit more future leading. So it's, it's, I feel like the music business is back, but it may never be to what it once was, which was, you know, a pretty archaic business model. So, so let's speak about like how you got into entrepreneurship and um, yeah, share with us the story behind you starting the agency. And maybe you could also speak about like, was this your first business? And yeah, just go ahead. Yeah. So my first kind of taste into entrepreneurialism was in high school when I was throwing parties. And that's kind mm. of the music business and really understand the power of music in general was I was in New York. There was every weekend, the big football games and everybody needed a place to go. <laughs> that kind of became my job was to put together these events and host kind of outlaws where we would bring people together after the football games and, And we would have a good time. And I started to realize that, like, music was this red thread. Yeah, you needed interesting people. And, yeah, you needed alcohol. But what really made it work was, like, if you could add a layer of music, people would start to vibe. It would create. Mm. And so I started to love it and started to, like, make mixes and hire DJs and start to get to know talent. And this is all high school and then early college as well. And so my first taste was going into freshman year in college. My girlfriend at the time, her, her sister was a casting agent and was like, Hey, we're shooting like a puff daddy music video. Um, you know, next weekend, Would you, uh, would you want to be in it? I know, like, you really like hip-hop. And <laughs> loved Puff. Like, <laughs> and he was in his prime. Like, this is popping. And um, they let me in. It's all about the Benjamins. We shot it in some query in New Jersey. Like, 6 p.m. to 10 a.m. All night. 
it was a crazy set. I got to meet little Kim and the locks and like Puffy was super paranoid because Biggie had just gotten killed. And so he was like on guard, but everybody came out in the baseball jerseys and it's all about the Benjamin shot. And like, that was my first taste in the music business. They paid me to be in this music video. And I was like, whoa. This How old were you back then? 17. Oh, crazy. Amazing, yeah. This is a business. This is something that's real. So I was in school for political science when I got to college because I didn't really know. And I just figured, you know, what worse comes to worse, maybe I could go into politics. But then I had this epiphany with no real contacts in the music business. I had this epiphany after Thanksgiving break freshman year flying from New York back to Wisconsin where I went to school and it was holy shit I want to be in the business of music <laughs> changed my major to get into business to study international business and marketing and got into this um this world started like connecting more and more into music and like trying to figure out how to get internships and try and figure out how to get some footing so when I got out of college, I could really hit the ground running. That's so I did. So how did you start the business? Because I think it's like really, really hard to get into this whole like music business or music industry. And you have built like such a huge, 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 huge brand. So um, I think like everybody would love to hear like <laughs> the story behind like how you started out, um, how you got your first customers and how you started co to, to collaborate with other musicians and how did you build this huge machine? So, um, yeah. So the first taste I had in music, well, I mean, the first kind of break I had in the industry was like I started calling every agency. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I thought like that was where the deals were. And a family friend was like, you know what? You don't want to be a lawyer. You're already throwing parties. You're already in the mix. Like you should think about being an agent. That's the best place to learn. And so I called every agency. I figured out this like resource celebrity access and basically called every agency under the sun and said, can you can I work for you can I work for you can I work for you and I finally found one agency that was like you know what I just fired my assistant I got the CEO on the phone it was a boutique and he was like why don't you come start for me tomorrow and so I started working I interviewed me first it was like two second interview and he was like you're in I don't care go ahead start with this. <laughs> and so I was doing like all the screen two tour contracts with like B2K and Amarion and and I had no idea what I was doing, but I was, <laughs> I called a bunch of agencies. Another agency called me over this period and said, Hey, we just got financing. What's going on? What are you doing? You sounded cool on the phone. Would you want to come in for an interview? I said, Hey, I'm working at this other company, Pyramid. And the guy said, I hate these guys at Pyramid. I'll pay you more money and give you a bigger opportunity. Come work for me. How so old were you back then? Like mid twenties or twenty-two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got and it. So I came and started, you know, we talked. I liked him. We started working together. He was like, I'm gonna let you be an agent. You can skip the mailroom, which is, you know, in the agency world, 
William Morris CAA, that's a long grind to get to be what I was doing at 22. They let me skip steps. So I was aggressive. I was just calling artists up. I started to sign like the Yin Yang twins and I like called them up and I was like, my my brother loves the yin yang twins, so <laughs> yeah. Ay 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 That was like their first. <laughs> with Mr. Kali Park, aka DJ Smurf, and then I was trying to sign Sean Paul, and like I ended up working with all these artists very early on. Sean Paul had a little song called "Give Me the Light," and best, and so got friendly with his team, Jerome and Jeremy, and this was early on. I started bringing them deals, but neither of them would sign with me. And then mm -hmm. I called a group called The Clips, and they had this little record grinding that Pharrell, this new producer that was like bubbling, was made for them. And it was this like kind of song that was like amazing. I was in love with it. And I uh, got a meeting, and they were like, This kid's crazy. He's 22. I can't even believe it, but he seems to know what he's talking about. And they were on this like grinding street tour that was a mess. And they said to me, hey, if you can fix our tour, we'll be, you can be our agent. And I worked my ass off. We worked on weekends. I got my boss involved. He taught me the ropes. And we got their tour cleaned up. And then they signed with us. This was 22. And then from there... They dropped the album and it went number two on the pop charts. Oh, crazy. <laughs> yeah. Business with one of the hottest groups out. We went on tour with Nelly for an arena tour. Then Jay-Z called. Then we went on the European tour with Jay-Z. And I was with them every step of the way. And we were doing all sorts of things. <laughs> and so I was quickly learning the business on the go representing one of the hottest artists in the culture. I mean, Pusha and I are still close to this day. And um, at that point, I really started to learn a lot of the business. And being an agent, you're on many facets of the deals, right? You're learning about artists, and you're representing artists, but you're also working with promoters and brands. You're this kind of first line of defense for all these different opportunities. You're really on the ground with the talent. Um, and then also in the suites. And so I was felt like I was in the streets in the suites with the talent. And eventually an opportunity came in where I was working with these promoters in Europe. And they just sold their company to a video game company. And the video game company was launching in L.A. And first they did a big U.K. launch. And they brought me in to bring all this talent out there. And I brought Pharrell and the Clips and Busta Rhymes and Sting and Jamiroquai and Mini-Me. It was like this whole kind of like big splashy announcement event. The company was like, we're launching in America and I want you to do our entertainment marketing. And so I moved to L.A. with him when he launched. And the product went from like, they went public and like Bill Gates held up the product at CES and the product, the stock went from three cents to $32. <laughs> it was a crazy experience uh, living in LA and doing video games and brokering deals with like Puff Daddy and like Kanye West all to like hopefully be a part of this next wave, this video game revolution. The company ended up imploding. It didn't end up working. 
Uh, it was like an 11 page expose in Wired. It was a huge scam. I was like, damn, LA is crazy. I'm getting the heck out of here. And I moved back to New York, basically with just the shirt on my back and, uh, and started a new agency. And mm. I was working in Harlem. He had a company called Digiwax. And I ran into him at a conference. And uh, he said, I said, hey, I'm moving back to New York. And he said, we're doing really well. We've got this young artist. Besides our agency, we've got this young artist. His name is Mims. I need some help with this guy. If you're starting a new agency, why don't you make him your first client? And you can work, mm. work off of a couch in my conference room. And so we started grinding for Mims. He was the first client at new agency. We started booking talent for him. We started booking shows for him. We started looking at endorsement deals. And he had this record, This Is Why I'm Hot, which I was in love with. Ah, uh, I, I think that's like a famous song, isn't it? It went yeah. on the pop charts. Yeah. <laughs> Client at New Agency was, you know, number one. And so from there, we were able to sign... Pretty quickly, a guy named Wale off of MySpace. And then Wale was just kind of getting rolling. He was working with Mark Ronson. And then he moved over to uh, Rock Nation. And this was like the early start of Rock Nation. And so like he introduced me to J. Cole. So we started working with J. Cole. And then Wale, Wale's manager introduced me to Mike Posner, who is this kid at Duke who had a little mixtape with this guy, Big Sean. So we started representing Mike Posner and Big Sean. And then, like, before you know it, we had, like, seven or eight artists. We were working. Crazy. At the time, CL gave us a room closet. We went from a the couch in DigiWax to, you know, a broom closet, essentially, in his office. And off of, like, a desk and with one other person, we were booking some of the hottest young artists in the culture. Crazy. And went on to Sarin Logic and Action Bronson and Capital Cities. <laughs> uh, the list goes on and on of who we've been first or early working with. And from there, New Agency was, you know, one of the hottest independent boutiques. And eventually, about five years ago, we changed our business model from representing artists to representing with brands, I joked that like I traded in my tracksuit and the 24-hour-a-day clock of being on call for artists for uh, back putting myself in a real suit and being on call for brands and um, really being this kind of connector between music and culture and brands and helping mm. understand that they're not thinking about music and celebrities and artists in the right way and to create more meaningful partnerships and helping them build music strategies and put together endorsement deals that are just more and more impactful. And we're going to help launch brands that way. We create buzz around campaigns and um, we're kind of like the deal factory right now. <laughs> so, um, Jesse, you, you have worked with so, 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 so many A-list celebrities. So what have you learned personally um, building like connections with those kind of folks or with those kind of people? Like um, 
let's give our listeners something practical. So what have you personally learned um, how to build relationships with, with A-list celebrities? Yeah, I feel like the name of the game is add value. Mm. First of all, you got to understand that a lot of brands have their agenda and their agenda is whatever their agenda is, but it might be different. The artist's vision is different. Artists want to do epic things. Artists want to have their music heard and their craft heard and celebrated. Artists want to be true to themselves and authentic. Artists want to feel that love, right? They're out there with, with such courage to share what's inside of their hearts. And if we can help them get their art appreciated, then it's all the difference. And so I think when you're dealing with artists and the beautiful thing about what we do now is like we came from an artist representation lens. Artists want to feel like you're listening to them and you're not just trying to exploit their fan base or their craft. You're actually looking to do something that's going to take it and, and, and add a new light to it or, or let them be themselves but put fuel behind whatever their mission or initiative is. So we really approach it from that lens. It's like, what are you looking to do? How can we help? You know that we do this all the time. You know that we understand an artist's sensibility. So we're not going to let you get sandbagged here. We're going to do this in a way that's meaningful and impactful and cool. And I think artists appreciate that, that we're there early with them and that we can help make this process of working with brands uh, a more enjoyable and impactful way. So I think come from the lens of add value first. And then I think from there, you go to the approach of how do we grow this? And mm. what else can we do beyond this kind of one one off experience? It's about relationships. Great advice. Being there with somebody along the ride and, and being for them for them when they're up and down, because that's inevitable, the cycle of what it's like in popular culture. Got it. So um, really, really appreciate your advice here. So um, how did you or, or what have you learned along the way, like scaling the business? Like you, you have started out like with one client and so uh, <laughs> and now you have this huge, 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 huge agency. Um, what have you learned um, about like scaling a business to the, those kind of kind of big, big numbers? So I mean, I feel like as part of growing a business. It's all about ebbing and flowing. I feel like you need to know uh, when you've got momentum and when you need to double down on that. Uh, mm. I really try to keep everything lean. And so we scale and we scale up and scale down in accordance to whatever our projects are. But the name of the game for us is to work on cool things that we have and and really be able to put our energy and focus in that. It's not so much about like building this massive business. It's really more about like the work. And so for us, like that's our scalability. Isn't necessarily in building a huge company. It's more in 
how big can the projects that we do, how many people can it reach? How many people can we positively impact? So I think the scalability is, and like the rewards come for us in the form of how big can the project scale versus how big can the team be and all that. I've had bigger teams. I prefer personally to be the rainmaker and not be so focused on 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 managing people and 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 that element of it those are elements that i would like to do but right now my primary focus is in business development and 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 doing the work a lot of what we do is sitting as a producer and making shit happen got it yeah it's not so much about building a big business it's more about putting out big projects So, um, gross. <laughs> so, for, for everybody who's listening to this, you would tell them um, stay as lean as possible. And um, if you have momentum um, and it's working, double down, double down, double down. Yeah, I mean, again, it's all case by case. If you're ah, trying okay, to got a, it. A, a service business, that's different than if you're trying to launch a product and if you're launching, like, uh, you know, if you're building a factory. Like it, it really depends if it's a consulting business. So it really depends on the business that you've got, what you want to achieve and how fast you want to achieve it. Got it. So, um, Jesse, could you please speak about like, what are you like currently doing? Because you said like, you are like, uh, the rainmaker in your agency now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, just please speak to that. I think a lot of what we're doing is partnerships with, a lot of the biggest artists in the world for brands that are hiring us to help them bake these meaningful partnerships and create these strategic alliances. And then another area of what we do is RIP, which is the stuff that we're producing, which I sit in on as an executive producer. So I'm creating content and leveraging our artists and brand relationships to create our own properties. And then I'm working on my first book, which is all about the intersection of music, technology, and brands. And that's basically my life's work to date, but also lessons, practical lessons that brands can learn from artists on how mm. to and grow. So it's a kind of like a 48 Laws of Power, but this is where you can learn from artists how to be more effective. And then... <laughs> And then the third area of our business is like the new frontiers. We're really, as a boutique agency, we're always looking for like that next opportunity, be it esports or the cannabis industry or bringing Western culture to China or uh, the cryptocurrency or voice recognition technology. These are areas that we're constantly exploring, investing in putting together early projects, whoa, putting together early projects. And, uh, and, and so these are areas that um, we're really focused on because we can see the most growth and the most impact. And so it's, it's definitely that kind of, I've found a business that matches my energy because mm -hmm. it's high energy. It's a lot of fun. It's super exciting. It's fast paced. 
and uh, I feel like I, I, you know, I'm the, I'm one of the people to do this, and uh, it's also a real privilege to work with such creatives and such artists, such big artists, and to work in hip hop. Um, you know, especially as a white guy, I uh, I know that um, I, it's 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 something that I don't take lightly. I don't take for granted. And uh, in this day and age, I'm really appreciative for the opportunities and the relationships and the friendships that I've been able to create. <laughs> really love this. So um, talking about your upcoming book, like what can brands learn from artists? So um, yeah, just speak to that, please, Jesse. Yeah, I think that the artist and brand world is, is changing. I feel like it started in an era Basically, the first chapter is the complete history of brands and artists. And I call it from the Rolling Stones to Post Malone. Because Rolling Stones were the first to ever do an endorsement deal. And it looked very different than what it does in this modern era. I feel like the number one thing you can learn um, from artists, and especially hip-hop artists that really kind of led this charge, is the entrepreneurial spirit of owning the brands that you're partnering with. And so... Um, you know, we go from everything. What, what do you mean by that? What What do you mean by that? Like partnering with headphone companies and creating Beats by Dre. Mm. Bigger than anything that Dr. Dre had done musically wise in terms of rap. So this has been a huge impact for him, even though, and he's been able to kind of leverage his base business to create huge, um, huge product businesses. Uh, other lessons, you know, we, we break down how to think like a SoundCloud rapper, which is like how to think like a cutting edge digital brand. And the lessons that you've learned from like Chance the Rapper as an indie artist to, to how to think like an indie brand and just differences. Or if you're an A-list artist like Bruce Springsteen, how you have leverage to come to the table or if you're Jay-Z who's really created a business like Apple where he's end to end. Jay-Z owns his own rights. He owns his management company. He owns his uh, record label. He owns the distribution model that he distributes his records on title. He has partnership with, with Live Nation and the Barclays Center. This is an artist that's end-to-end -end in his product mm. the way that like an A-list brand like Apple thinks. And so, you know, it's a lessons book, basically, that's going to have a lot of great anecdotes, some from my life, some from uh, artists that I've worked with or brands that I've worked with. But we can see that like there's different ways to approach your brand. Uh, if you're an A-list artist, if you're a SoundCloud rapper, if you're a jam band like Grateful Dead, or I even think Beyonce kind of thinks like a culture, thinks like a jam band. But that's similar to like Soul Cycle or Ben and Jerry's, which are like cultures, cultures and cults around what these brands stand for. There's lessons, right? Like um, Soul Cycle is based a lot around the same way that, that that Grateful Dead was built. 
So um, we also have talked uh, quite quite a bit about like promoting artists and promoting your brand. So um, what would you tell everybody who's currently listening to this? Um, how to really promote your brand, like how to get your name out there? Because it, I think it's quite hard in this modern day and time. So many people want to become artists. So many people want to become writers. And um, yeah, what would you tell everybody who's currently listening to this? In 2019, every brand should think like an artist and every artist should think like a brand. So it's mm. a relationship. And I think you need to start thinking about how you can build a grassroots movement with the community behind you. And you need to be incorporating all the technology out there that you can use to galvanize your community, to create a culture, and then keep putting out consistent product. You got to stay top of the social graph, like a SoundCloud rapper. You need to be relevant and you need to be hot and you need to be understand what your brand stands for, what your brand's audience is, and where you can play, that you can authentically reach your audience and then do it and keep mm. consistently dropping. You can't be too exclusive, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So you got to continue to flood that social graph. This is a, an era of 24-7. And you need to be thinking along those lines the same way musicians are thinking those lines in this day and age. <laughs> I really love this. So, um, Jesse, I, I really love this episode so far. Um, at the end, I always ask like five very quick and short questions. But before I ask those five questions, um, could you please give everybody who's currently listening this, your best advice on entrepreneurship like what would you tell them about building a business building a brand um yeah making money like what is your best advice yeah it takes a village remember you can't do it by yourself so uh build your tribe and consistently be bringing in new influences and new ideas to help you strengthen your vision. And I think also another would be adapt or die. In this mm -hmm. age, you gotta constantly be ebbing and flowing and changing with the times to grow and to take advantage of these new evolving platforms. And um, I mean, I think those are some good ones. There's a lot yeah. to entrepreneur. I, I think, you know, the, really the kind of big thing is to play the long game, understand mm -hmm. that this is kind of like a political campaign and you got to live like at any day, everything is going to kind of be transparent and out there. So don't cut corners and build relationships that, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you can still tap uh, because you did them right. And because you're respectful. And uh, I think you got to look at this as not a short play, but a long play. And I don't know, I, I'm more of like entrepreneurialism is a state of mind and is a lifestyle, even if you're in a corporate suite or on a corner street. I feel like that's a, a kind of a mentality that you got to be thinking um, about. As, as, as what you want. And I think you got to take care of your mind 
your body and your soul throughout all of this. I feel like entrepreneurialism can burn you out if you're not focused on treating yourself like an athlete and meditating and sleeping well and eating right and putting good fuel into your body. I think all of that is going to uh, make you a stronger performer in the boardroom. And I also would say uh, follow your passions. And, mm. and because there'll be days where you will not want to do this bullshit, but you can snap out of it and remind yourself that you're doing what you love. And that means so much more than a short-term paycheck. It means that it's a filling, um, a burning desire in your heart. And keep stoking that fire and stay curious, friends. <laughs> I really love this. So um, uh, could you please tell everybody where can they connect with you on the social webs, uh, find you and so on and so forth. And really, I appreciate, I appreciate your great advice. So, yeah. Awesome. So every week I do a newsletter. It's the biggest thing in music, tech, and brands. It's called Beats and Bites. I highly recommend you sign up for it. It's at my website, which is newagency.com, N-U-E-Agency.com. That's New Universal Entertainment Agency. And otherwise, connect with me on social media. I'm at Jesse K, J-E-S-S-E-K-A-Y, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, on all them things. Got it. <laughs> so um, the first out of the five question is, Jesse, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Uh, Art of War, War of Art, and I'm always about the last one's my best one. So I'm really enjoying right now this book called Contagious, which is uh, how viral ideas spread. Mm, got it. So um, the second question is, uh, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? I'm a rom-com guy, but that's really just on a plane. Uh, I'm also in the similar fashion where like the last book, last movie I saw was my favorite. Um, I liked Bohemian Rhapsody. I liked, uh, I thought Greatest Showman was a good movie. I really enjoyed that. Um, and what else would be a great film? I mean, all the Rockies. <laughs> Got it. So um, the third question is, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? product or service most useful uh i'm really into four sigma mushrooms right now uh, ah. like the coffee alternative i'm trying to cut coffee down so i've been using them for various things if it's coffee if it's matcha if it's going to sleep if it's charcoal lemonade uh For water to make water taste a little better and have some more electrolytes so right now i'm like all on my uh shroom game and um it's been a fun one to kind of been playing with this month 
<laughs> so um, the fourth question is, um, Jesse, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared like something like deeply personal about their business time, their family relationships. So speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. Uh, I think a lot of it goes down to health is wealth and knowledge is power and keep feeding your mind and body and soul and you'll be a more well-rounded person and then you can bring that kind of balance and energy into every arena that you step in uh also music is the universal language music is the great connector music is such an undervalued asset And there's so much importance and meaning and need for music. So when in doubt, press play. <laughs> so um, the last question for today is, um, Jesse, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would tell myself that it's so important to build routines and rituals. And having a good routine and kind of uh, just basic rituals can put stability into life that can allow you to move around and do all of these things, but feel more grounded and more um, kind of put together. When I was in my 20s, I didn't understand how to, uh, to, to, to get it all done because I was just kind of all over the place. And I think building a good practice of kind of health and balance um, would allow me more headspace to do strategic thinking instead of just uh, moving and shaking and ebbing and flowing. And, uh, you know, I think that that, that would ultimately uh, um, help make some better choices in certain instances where I, I made some mistakes. Got it. So, um, Jesse, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. I, um, I think this episode was great. So thank you very, very much for joining today. I hope it was helpful. I had my pleasure. And if anybody wants to reach out, you know where to find me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> See ya. Yeah, peace.